hello 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 and happy new year um <clears throat> i i'm just uh going to start off the new year properly with a little reading again uh over the holiday break i read a very good book that was rec recommended to me uh, by a friend actually given to me as a gift the previous christmas for uh, by a friend it's Olaf Stapledon's 1937 novel, Star Maker, which is a rather, I think, underknown book. Um, it's tempting to class it as science fiction, but it's 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 much more than that, and it's it's almost impossible to describe. Um, but essentially, it involves a man who goes up onto a hill and then has an experience and uh, becomes a disembodied mind floating throughout the universe and he sees uh, the universe from birth till death and the development of other species and um, goes in search of the star maker, the creator uh, and it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's an experience to read, it's, it's pretty hard to describe um, but he basically experiences all life in the universe um, from beginning to end and meets the creator um, so I won't say any more and I can't really say much more because it's just something that you've got to read and if you haven't and as I said it's quite underknown then I do recommend that you give it a shot it's fantastic, strange and brilliant um, but I thought I would read today um, possibly a bit spoilery I suppose um, but the epilogue when after this journey um, the man comes back to earth, he wakes up again on the hill in earth and I thought after the huge cosmic and multiversal um, journey that he's been on uh, that this meditation on life on earth uh, is, is quite beautiful um, just as he journeys through the universe and through cosmic history, he now journeys across the world in his mind. And uh, uh, given the time that this was written, 1937, a very dark period, um, which shows throughout the book, even in the most uh, cosmical and fantastical sections, um, this uh, this epilogue has, has a lot of resonance um, and possibly does even today. So anyway, um, but this doesn't really spoil much of the book because, as I said, it's so so multitudinous that it's pretty difficult to spoil. Um, but I thought this epilogue was quite lovely and it would give you a taste. So here we go. Epilogue. Back to Earth. I woke on the hill. The street lamps of our suburb outshone the stars. The reverberation of the clock's stroke was followed by eleven strokes more. I singled out our window. A surge of joy, of wild joy, swept me like a wave. Then peace. The littleness, but the intensity, of earthly events. Gone, abolished in an instant, was the hyper-cosmical reality, the wild fountain of creations and all the spray of worlds, vanished, transmuted into fantasy and into a sublime irrelevance. The littleness but the intensity of this whole grain of rock 
with its film of ocean and of air, and its discontinuous, variegated, tremulous film of life, of the shadowy hills, of the sea, vague, horizonless, of the pulsating, cephide lighthouse, of the clanking railway trucks. My hand caressed the pleasant harshness of the heather. Vanished the hypercosmical apparition. Not such as I had dreamed must the real be, but infinitely more subtle, more dread, more excellent, and infinitely nearer home. It, however false the vision and detail of structure, even perhaps in its whole form, in temper surely it was relevant, in temper perhaps it was even true. The real itself surely had impelled me to conceive that image, false in every theme and facet, yet in spirit true. The stars wanly trembled above the street lamps, great suns or feeble sparks in the night sky. Suns, it was vaguely rumoured, lights at least to steer by and to beckon the mind from the terrestrial flurry, but piercing the heart with their cold spears. Sitting there on the heather, on our planetary grain, I shrank from the abysses that opened up on every side and in the future. The silent darkness, the featureless unknown, were more dread than all the terrors that imagination had mustered. Peering, the mind could see nothing sure, nothing in all human experience to be grasped as certain, except uncertainty itself. Nothing but obscurity gendered by a thick haze of theories. Man's science was a mere mist of numbers, his philosophy but a fog of words. His very perception of this rocky grain and all its wonders was but a shifting and a lying apparition. Even oneself, that seeming central fact, was a mere phantom, so deceptive that the most honest of men must question his own honesty, so insubstantial that he must even doubt his very existence. And there were loyalties, so self-deceiving, so misinformed and misconceived, so savagely pursued and hate-warped, were very loves, and these in full and generous intimacy must be condemned as unseeing, self-regarding, and self-gratulatory. And yet, I singled out our window. We had been happy together. We had found, or we had created, our little treasure of community. This was the one rock in all the welter of experience. This not the astronomical and hypercosmical immensity, nor even the planetary grain. This, this alone, was the solid ground of existence. On every side was confusion, a rising storm, great waves already drenching our rock, and all around in the dark welter, faces and appealing hands, half seen and vanishing. And the future... Black with the rising storm of this world's madness, though shot through with flashes of a new and violent hope, the hope of a sane, a reasonable, a happier world. Between our time and that future, what horror lay in store? Oppressors would not meekly give way, and we too, accustomed only to security and mildness, were fit only for a kindly world, wherein, none being tormented, none turns desperate. We were adapted only to fair weather, for the practice of the friendly but not too difficult, not heroical virtues, in a society both secure and just. Instead, we found ourselves in an age of titanic conflict, 
when the relent pardon me when the relentless powers of darkness and the ruthless because desperate powers of light were coming to grips for a death struggle in the world's torn heart when grave choices must be made in crisis after crisis and no simple or familiar principles were adequate beyond our estuary a red growth of fire sprang from a foundry at hand the dark forms of the gorse lent mystery to the suburb's foot-worn moor. In imagination I saw, beyond our own hill's top, the further and unseen hills. I saw the plains and woods and all the fields, each with its myriads of particular blades. I saw the whole land curving down from me over the planet's shoulder. The villages were strung together on a mesh of roads, steel lines and humming wires mist drops on a cobweb. Here and there a town displayed itself as an expanse of light, a nebulous luminosity sprinkled with stars. Beyond the plains, London, neon-lit, seething, was a microscope slide drawn from foul water and crowded with nosing animalcules. Animalcules! In the stars' view, no doubt, these creatures were mere vermin, yet each to itself and sometimes one to another, was more real than all the stars. Gazing beyond London, imagination detected the dim stretch of the channel, and then the whole of Europe, a patchwork of tillage and sleeping industrialism. Beyond Poplar to Normandy spread Paris, with the towers of Notre Dame tipped slightly by reason of Earth's curvature. Further on, the Spanish night was ablaze with the murder of cities. Away to the left lay Germany, with its forests and factories, its music, its steel helmets. In cathedral squares I seemed to see the young men ranked together in thousands, exalted, possessed, saluting the floodlit Führer. In Italy too, land of memories and illusions, the mob's idol spellbound the young. Far leftwards again, Russia, an appreciably convex segment of our globe, Snow pale in the darkness, spread out under the stars and cloud attracts. Inevitably, I saw the spires of the Kremlin confronting the Red Square. There, Lenin lay, victorious. Far off, at the foot of the Urals, imagination detected the ruddy plumes and smoke pall of Magnetostroy. Beyond the hills there gleamed a hint of dawn, for day at my midnight was already pouring westward across Asia, overtaking with its advancing front of golden rose the tiny smoke caterpillar of the Trans-Siberian Express. To the north, the iron-hard Arctic oppressed the exiles in their camps. Far southward lay the rich valleys and plains that once cradled our species. But there I now saw railway lines ruled across the snow. In every village, Asiatic children were waking to another school day and to the legend of Lenin. South again, the Himalayas, snow-clad from waist to crest, looked over the rabble of their foothills into crowded India. I saw the dancing cotton plants and the wheat and the sacred river that bore the waters of Kamet past rice fields and crocodile shallows, past Calcutta with its shipping and its offices, down to the sea. From my midnight, I looked into China, the morning sun glanced from the flooded fields and gilded the ancestral graves. 
The Yangtze, a gleaming crumpled thread, rushed through its gorge. Beyond the Korean ranges and across the sea stood Fujiyama, extinct and formal. Around it a volcanic population welled and seethed in that narrow land like lava in a crater. Already it spilled over Asia a flood of armies and of trade. Imagination withdrew and turned to Africa. I saw the man-made thread of water that joins west to east, then minarets, pyramids, the ever-waiting sphinx. Ancient Memphis itself now echoed with the rumour of Magnetostroy. Far southward, black men slept beside the great lakes. Elephants trampled the crops. Further still, where Dutch and English profit by the Negro millions, those hosts were stirred by vague dreams of freedom. Peering beyond the whole bulge of Africa, beyond cloud-spread Table Mountain, I saw the southern ocean, black with storms, and then the ice cliffs with their seals and penguins and the high snowfields of the one unpeopled continent. Imagination faced the midnight sun, crossed the pole and passed Erebus, vomiting hot lava down his ermine. Northward, it sped over the summer sea, past New Zealand, that freer but less conscious Britain, to Australia, where clear-eyed horsemen collect their flocks. Still peering eastward from my hill, I saw the Pacific, strewn with islands, and then the Americas, where the descendants of Europe long ago mastered the descendants of Asia, through priority in the use of guns, and the arrogance that guns breed. Beside the farther ocean, north and south, lay the old and new world, the River Plate and Rio, the New England cities, radiating centre of the old new style of life and thought. New York, dark against the afternoon sun, was a cluster of tall crystals, a stonehenge of modern megaliths. Round these, like fishes nibbling at the feet of waders, the great liners crowded. Out at sea also I saw them, and the plunging freighters forging through the sunset, portholes and decks aglow. Stokers sweated at furnaces, lookout men in crow's nests shivered, dance music issuing from opened doors was drowned by the wind. The whole planet, the whole rock grain, with its busy swarms, I now saw as an arena where two cosmical antagonists, two spirits, were already preparing for a critical struggle, already assuming terrestrial and local guise, and coming to grips in our half-awakened minds. In city upon city, in village after village, and in innumerable lonely farmsteads, cottages, hovels, shacks, huts, and all the crevices where human creatures were intent on their little comforts and triumphs and escapes, the great struggle of our age was brewing. One antagonist appeared as the will to dare for the sake of the new, the longed for, the reasonable and joyful world in which every man and woman may have scope to live fully and live in service of mankind. The other seemed essentially the myopic fear of the unknown, or was it more sinister? Was it the cunning will for private mastery which fomented for its own ends the archaic, reason-hating and vindictive passion of the tribe? It seemed that in the coming storm all the dearest things must be destroyed. 
all private happiness, all loving, all creative work in art, science and philosophy, all intellectual scrutiny and speculative imagination, and all creative social building, all indeed that man should normally live for, seemed folly and mockery and mere self-indulgence in the presence of public calamity. But if we failed to preserve them, when would they live again? How to face such an age? How to muster courage being capable only of homely virtues? How to do this, yet preserve the mind's integrity, never to let the struggle destroy in one's own heart what one tried to serve in the world, the spirit's integrity? Two lights for guidance. The first, our little glowing atom of community, with all that it signifies. The second, the cold light of the stars, symbol of the hypercosmical reality, with its crystal ecstasy. Strange that in this light, in which even the dearest love is frostily assessed, and even the possible defeat of our half-waking world is contemplated without remission of praise, the human crisis does not lose, but gains, significance. Strange that it seems more, not less, urgent to play some part in this struggle, this brief effort of animalcules striving to win for their race some increase of lucidity before the ultimate darkness. And there we have it. Happy New Year again. Um, as I said, it's a bloody good book. Um, weird and wonderful and indefinable, indescribable almost. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, it's poetry and myth and science and religion and spirituality and science fiction and questing um, and so much more all, all, all at the same time. So highly recommended and uh, yes I think those words in a dark age do possess some wisdom, some meaning in our current period of crisis. Anyway, that's all for now. See you later. Have a lovely week and have a lovely new year.